This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. So a lot of what we do at Wipeout Crew um, here in the garden, whether it's uh, you know up in the mountains or, or down in the bay or in the oceans, uh, whether we're doing a beach cleanup or we're you know we're harvesting, we're planting out here, um, or even working in our botanical native Hawaiian garden, a lot of what we do is um, try to figure out how we can best work with what we have and how we can create uh, really the best environment uh, for everybody. And a lot of that has to do with education. It has to do with looking at your place and looking at where people have come from and where we are now and where we're going. And if there can be some kind of communication there and people can get together and be at the same table and discuss their points of view, the perspective, that's really what the Wipeout Crew is all about. It's about learning and educating ourselves and being best prepared to be of some good and some service to the world. This is the What School Could Be podcast. I am your host, Josh Rapoon. Before we start the show, please consider joining the What School Could Be global online community. Simply install the What School Could Be app on your mobile device or go to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org. I look forward to seeing you there. Today, my guest is Paul Balaz, the theory of knowledge teacher, student activities coordinator, and Wipeout Crew founder and advisor, among many other things, at Henry J. Kaiser High School in East Honolulu. Listeners, as always, I spent two weeks prepping for today's conversation. In the end, I must have had 30 questions I wanted to ask Paul, but in a painful process and in the interests of time, I had to narrow them down to just nine or 10. Ouch. So here is what I will not be asking Paul Balaz in this interview, though some of these topics might come up anyway in his responses to my chosen questions. I was not able to ask him why the following awards have great meaning to him. The Donald and Astrid Monson Award, the League of Women Voters Award, and the Aloha Award, which recognizes individuals in the global surfing community who are ambassadors of the Aloha spirit. There was not enough time to ask Paul about growing up on the east side of Oahu and his near total ambivalence about this concept we call school. Nor was there time to ask about what gets lost when we cut rich band, orchestra, or other types of music classes in the name of balancing the budget, something Paul cares deeply about. I was not able to ask about the meaning of important books Paul cited as influential, including The Prophet, Into the Wild, and I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. And in the end, his development of a peace and sustainability garden had to be set aside. We did not have time to cover how Paul is inspired by the work of Hawaii's remarkable number of nonprofit organizations, or what happens when teachers go on walkabouts to faraway places and how that changes and evolves their philosophies of education. Nor did we have time to talk about the role high schools and middle schools play in addressing climate change, nor his work with organizations called Sustainable Coastlines, 808 Cleanups, and Aloha Animal Sanctuary. And we did not have time to talk about the graduate program he is in at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Indeed, I dropped questions about what happened in a small East Honolulu coffee shop 16 years ago, and Paul's thoughts on these two questions he thinks are profoundly different from each other. What do youth need to know? And what do youth need to know about? Even worse, on the cutting room floor, I left questions about the severe impact of continuing our 100-year-old tradition of content-driven, sage-on-the-stage teaching and learning, and how this damages students' engagement in the joy of education. 
worst of all, I had to leave out a question about a moment when Paul and 10 of his students showed up to help rebuild an ancient fish pond on the windward side of Oahu. At this point, listeners, you must be saying, dang, if he left out all these questions and topics, what the heck did he talk to Paul about? Well, friends, continue on and find out. And now, here's my conversation with the inspiring Paul Balaz, who, to community members and colleagues, is known as a life force. Welcome to the What School Could Be podcast. Aloha. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. So, Paul, I was going to begin with a heavy question about having a calling and acting on it, but I decided to put that question off for later so our listeners can get to know you a bit first. So let's find out who you are, and then we'll dive into the deep end of the pool a little bit later. So, Paul, what is punk rock, and how do you define punk and why was the early 2000s a good time to be playing in a punk rock band in iconic Waikiki or downtown Honolulu, as you did? Oh my gosh, what a great question. Great opener. You know, punk rock is a state of mind. You know, it's, it's a way that you live your life, the way you see the situation around you, your culture, your community, and you try to find a way to, to find a place in it that reflects your own personal background, your values, you know, what you care about. And punk rock for me in the early 2000s was just that. It was a community of people who saw alternative ways to, you know, to fit the needs of the time and a place they felt they could, they could share their art and their passion, what they wanted, not just for themselves, but for their community. And I think it ties into like kind of the choices I've made you know, as a young man and now as a, even as a teacher. Back then, I mean, rolling up to a gig at you know, 6 p.m., 7 p.m. In, in Waikiki or downtown, knowing that you found a place that, didn't quite fit into kind of the norms of society, but in that found its own, you know, its own piece of the puzzle. You know, and I think it's a critical part of a community is, you know, every person, despite whatever backgrounds or beliefs they have, has a, has a seat at the table. And so for me, that's been punk rock. And that was my early, early days playing guitar and <laughs> a couple of bands. And, and now as an educator, yeah, through and through, punk rock is, is a fundamental of mine for sure. Do you still play, Paul? Yeah, not so much punk rock anymore. You know, I kind of, put up the electric guitar and I play acoustics. You know, mm. I write my own song. It's more of, I'd say, folk and maybe alternative, you could say, if you categorize it. But mm. yeah, I play some some bluegrass and uh, some country too. So mm, That's awesome. So I love, love stories about educators, quote, former lives that reveal very cool things about them. And in your case, Paul, you worked during high school at Chuck E. Cheese, Taco Bell, and the Olive Harbor Yacht Club, and later as a barista and warehouse worker, I might add. And you said each of these moments taught you a little more about yourself and the different sides of your fellow humans, both co-workers and customers. And there's a wonderful podcast hosted by Steve Shapiro called Experience Matters. So in what ways did your experiences contribute to the many iterations of Paul Blas? Well, first and foremost, you know, I think that foundation really matters. The roots that you're given, you know, as a child are, are nurtured as you grow up. And every choice you make, everything you do, all the, you know, the different ways you spend your time, it all matters. Everything that you do has a place. And so it can be consistent about that to know that every day is a new opportunity to meet a new person from a different background, to have a conversation with someone who's, you know, has a different point of view even to work in a place that you might never actually find yourself, you know, on the day to day, just a place you, you wouldn't typically go to enjoy a Friday night with your friends, you know, just working in different kinds of settings. It gives you a different kind of piece of the onion, you know, or layer of the onion, mm-hmm. so to speak, you know, it gives you a different, different way of looking at the world and those jobs, you know, Chuck E. Cheese, Taco Bell, <laughs> and they're working as a busser and a wait staff at a yacht club, you know, that, you know, typically serves, you know, the complete, opposite of what you might find served, you know, being served at Taco Bell or Chuck E. Cheese, yeah. whole different, you know, category, you know, just gives you kind of different things to consider. I think that that, you know, kind of weighs into, it's really the paths we choose in life. You know, mm. everything does, everything does matter. So. Mm. Do you find yourself referencing those experiences 
Even explicitly when you're working as an educator in the classroom or in the many projects that you're in, you know, do you ever find yourself sort of talking about them with your students as a way for them to understand you and to kind of build context around what you're doing? Maybe to an extent, you know, the varieties of jobs, but maybe not in particular, you know, one or the other. It's it's more just, you know, teaching kids that the experiences are what is not just what gives us backbone, but what gives us flavor, what gives mm. us taste, you know, mm-hmm. and yeah. to decide upon a certain principle, you know, the way you're going to live your life or certain preferences or philosophies, all of those take time, you know, and so you have to have different experiences. You have to put yourself in situations where you're uncomfortable and what you're going to find is inconvenient and it's hard to swallow, you know, and that, that takes initiative and takes ambition and it takes knowing that you don't have everything you need. There is, you are incomplete and that's okay. But it just takes waking up on a day to day in a certain frame of mind, you know, a certain a certain way of just going about it. And so I, I honestly, I, I probably reference my travel more than I do my mm. early work. Mm-hmm. You know, Taco Bell and Chuck E. Cheese, I think, build me <laughs> character and, and maybe some <laughs> backbone. But yeah. you know, honestly, I think that when you get into it and you start to really take some risks and go to different countries, mm. you know, especially maybe even under pretenses where you think that there are some there's some risk there. I think that that's what puts you in a condition where there's no, there's no other way to go than to learn. There's right. nothing else that, that can happen. If you're in a situation where you don't know what's expected, then there's really nothing else that, you could, that can be done but just learn and become better. Yeah, that's awesome. And I love the idea that there's an element of patience built into this in your life, that you see life as you react to life very patiently as a series of unfolding iterations, every person, every experience, you know, everything that you do is just sort of another layer of that onion that you were referring to. And there's a certain amount of patience that gets built into that as you kind of relax into just being, right? And so that's a great segue to the first of these heavier questions in the deep end of the pool. So Paul, I'm going to read the description for a nine-minute on-being podcast we both listen to in advance of today's conversation. So here goes. So quote, In the modern Western world, vocation was equated with work, but each of us has callings, not merely to be professionals, but to be friends, neighbors, colleagues, family, citizens, lovers of the world. Each of us imprints the people in the world around us, breath to breath and hour to hour, as much in who we are and how we are present as in whatever we do. And just as there are callings for a life, there are callings for our time. So Paul, for more than a hundred years, education has been about amassing content and gaining some skills like literacy and numeracy and becoming professionals in a field. So On Being's Krista Tippett, the host, seems to suggest that our higher aspiration in education is to guide young learners to find a calling, be moved by it, and act on it. So what are you called to do, Paul Blas, who is a teacher? What song, what voice, what lyrics, what Homeric siren calls you forward each day? And how do you translate your calling to helping your students find theirs? Well, you know, I think that I got a reference, the motto of my high school, noblesse oblige, you know, Marino High School. And, you know, that translates to, to whom much is given, much is expected. And for a person you know, who grew up in Mount Alua or Hawaii, who now gets to work there, you know, I'm blessed to, you know, to work where I grew up. I really do think that through an act of service or, or a life of service, rather, I think that that's how we find, you know, our place in, in all of it. That every person has a purpose, has a meaning that's yet unfulfilled, you know, and it, it's just, it's up to the community to work together to provide the environment for that person to find, you know, what it is that, you know, that they need. I really do think that a life of giving towards others, that it's within that giving that someone finds that the greatest and the sweetest reward of all, which is to provide what others need to grow. Mm. And that's, that's the growth itself. And I think from an early on, you know, early point in my life, I, I think that the way that I was raised and the experiences that I had growing up and my education played a large role, but I, I think that it's the people that I was surrounded by. You know, it's the people that then make you know, life worth living, you know, life's so rich. Even now, my students, my colleagues, my neighbors, I don't, you know, categorize anybody. They're just another another part of the village. Mm-hmm. You know, my students know that I see them as equals. You know, I, I provide them with an education, but they provide me with an education as well. Mm-hmm. You know, what we do at the end of a year is 
create something that we can both be proud of, that we can both say, hey, this is a, a year well spent. You know, and you can look back on those things with experiences that have made a difference. Mm. You know, it's not having a resource, you know, like a, maybe it's like an economic framework, but it's not providing a resource for people. It's more of providing a situation everyone can find what they need to grow and what everyone needs to thrive. So I wonder, Paul, if there are moments where in the course of your day-to-day teaching and all of the other activities that you participate in with kids, that you see a young person sort of latch on to something that you've exposed them to, some experience of some sort, and then you actually see them begin to connect with that as if somehow that's like an early stage of a calling of some sort. I'm sure that you've experienced that. And what happens in that moment for you as you watch that unfold? You know, those moments are incredible. I reach for them and I hold on to them. Yeah. You know, when a young person finds something in themselves that has just opened up or has has just had a light shine upon it. You know, I, there was an experience that I had in college. I was, you know, volunteering at a private school for individuals with special needs and mm. first time ever in an educational setting like that. And And just having been there in that moment and having experienced the love of those students and those teachers and their parents and the families that came to support them at the end of the day, on the, on the daily, there's something inside me that I had not experienced yet that I just felt open up and felt gravitated towards the calling of education. Mm. And when I see it in students, when we're discussing, you know, social issues or issues in the community, issues that surround, you know, things that they're passionate about today, like sustainability or, or conservation or equality or diversity or justice, like, you know, when you're discussing these hot topics, you know, that might get a lot of media attention, social media, even like, you know, mass media, you know, students aren't really ever asked to, you know, have a seat at the table or share their perspective. But in a classroom setting, you know, when you're able to have an honest discussion about, you know, how things are and what they see and, and what they care about, you do see those, you know, those moments of, of clarity where the students are, are seeing that, you know, the other people care about these issues, but they have a voice. And mm. for, for students, through whatever medium you're providing, for them to see their own voice come to life, whether it's in an oral presentation, you know, in a classroom setting, obviously, and surrounded by their peers and their friends, or it's on a paper, you know, they can see that they have something to say. And mm. without, you know, really being given that opportunity, I think some of those things, just like I experienced, you know, will never have a light shown on it, mm. you know? So that's, that's really what keeps me driven. It is those experiences, you know, they really do happen daily. They're not just, you know, a, a summative or a form of assessment, you know, that were required by law to, to provide, but mm. it's more just conversations, discussions. It's, it's letting people know that, you know, that they're not alone. And you're also observing that as these students have these moments, which you're watching from your perch as a coach and a guide and a mentor and advisor, that they are starting to connect with other humans. This is going back to what you said earlier about life is almost like a series of iterations that are built from connections with other humans. And as they have these contacts with other you know, individuals who are also sparked by whatever it is that they're being sparked by, conservation, peace, whatever it happens to be, that they begin to understand their own lives as built on the connections with other people. Is that, is that a fair way of looking at it? Absolutely. You know, I, I really do believe that everyone has a thread and the thread is which, you know, of which they, they lead their lives and they're woven in together you know, mm-hmm. as one community. And so when they find the other threads that are going a different direction, all that does is provide them a little more perspective and just strengthens their bonds together. Mm. Wow. You know, you actually texted me with a thought about flames. Can you share that with our listeners, how you kind of reconfigured the thread metaphor into a flame metaphor? Oh, sure. I think that every single person has a special characteristic about them, a special spirit within them. And everyone is a flame. And so the way I kind of see it is if you're in a dark room and the darkness is not a metaphor for evil, but it could be, but more of a metaphor for things unseen, things Mm. that have not yet to be shown to you. And that's and the world is so large. There's so much. There's so much to see and so much to do. So, if you're just a single flame, say this room of darkness or a room of room of the unknown, mm. the single flame can only do so much. But if you invite other flames into the room, mm. if you invite other flames to stand in other parts of your life, maybe in the corner, maybe if, you know near to you or perhaps far away, but just for you to identify and be aware and celebrate and recognize those other flames, other perspective, other points of view, 
other ways of seeing and being in the world. Mm-hmm. The other parts of what you have not yet seen or not had any idea that was, a, you know, that was there now had the light shine on them. And so now this room that was only just, you know, lit by one flame is now lit by many mm-hmm. and you have more now to see. And, and with more now to see, you have more maps in which you can follow. There's more things you can do. There's more places you can go because you have perspective and perspective is everything. But you have to first be able to identify and celebrate that other people also have flames, regardless of whether they're like yours or not. Mm. You know, Paul, it happens almost in every episode. I have this feeling where I want to go back to school. <laughs> <laughs> and you've just given me that feeling. And what you've pictured for me is a very warm and inviting environment to learn. And that's why I'm having that feeling right now. It feels very inclusive. So that's awesome. So perfect segue then to this Final question before we take our first break. So, Paul, in May of 2016, you were given the Teacher of Promise Award from the National Milk and Educators of Hawaii, which is pretty awesome, but that was seven years ago. So I know you walk on the humble side of the street, but what did you understand back then about what it meant to be a Teacher of Promise? And what has happened in these past seven years that is evidence you were becoming more promising by the day? That's a great question. And I, I really do think that my love for students has always been paramount, always comes first. I think that what I learned, you know, back then, I, and I began teaching at the school I'm at now, you know, Kaiser from 2012 and 13. Mm. But when I, when I received that award, I think that that award was a reflection of the love that was created by the environment that I had in my classroom. You know, mm. that award was a reflection, not just of what I was doing, but what we were doing together. I think students need teachers that know that they love them, that despite all else, that, that they know the teacher has their backs. And oftentimes that does mean teachers taking risks, you know, taking risks you know, that other colleagues maybe wouldn't, you know, or, or that maybe the social norms and agreements that are set forth by, by just an educator, professional. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you have to create an environment that just is kind of punk rock, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's truly, I think, is, is where that came from. It was just... A reflection of the projects and the experiences that those students and myself are able to create, not just for ourselves in our classroom, but for the school and for the community. That award was a reflection of all of their work that was being done outwards, not just in the classroom, but outwards into the lives of others. Mm. And you know, so that award, I, I stood there in the the gymnasium that day and I celebrated that award with my students in my arms. You know, mm. that was an award won by all of us, not just myself. You know, Paul, I didn't think that we were going to have time to talk about this today, but I'm going to I'm going to seize the moment here. In my 17 years in the classroom, I believe that some of the moments of, you know, the most complete relationship that I was building with my students came because we were taking some risks together. Probably or most typically around some sort of content that we were dealing with or you know, something like that that would have been viewed as risky by maybe parents or administrators, you know, some topic that we dove into that might even today or probably especially today would have seemed controversial and something that you would have avoided. And I think you've touched on something here about elements of taking risk and the way that students understand that when you do that with them, right? Is that how that works? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, and they're not they're not risks all, all the time in, in terms of, you know, what's controversial or might be making other people angry or, you know, driving a stake through a, a big issue. It's, it's more in, in the way of students identifying areas that they know they need to grow and areas that maybe the classroom setting or education just doesn't really make room for. You know, so identifying those things and saying, hey, I, I care, you know, that much about this, but I, you know, I'm going to work on it. So those are more of the risks that I'm, that I'm talking about. And I do think that we need more educators like that and more classroom experiences like that that are are willing to to go, you know, see those edges and go beyond them. Mm, That's awesome. Well said. So, hey, everyone, we'll be right back with more questions for Paul Balaz. Hi, fellow educators. I'm Steve Shapiro. And like you, I'm excited about the possibilities of what school could be. Please check out my podcast, Experience Matters where I talk to guests ranging from big national thinkers like Daniel Pink and Tony Wagner to recent high school graduates about the most profound learning experiences of their youth. Then we dig into the implications for how we can reshape schools to produce powerful breakthrough learning for all of our students. Education can take many forms, but whatever form it takes, experience matters. Hey there. 
Are you interested in hearing weekly conversations with authors, leaders, and practitioners at the forefront of learning and education innovation? Then you'll love the Getting Smart podcast. This podcast amplifies the incredible work being done by some of the most innovative minds in education. Learn new leadership styles, new technologies, new frameworks and mindsets, and get the fuel you need to stay motivated and curious. Together, we can empower all learners to thrive. It's available at gettingsmart.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, friends. This is Toy Hirschman from EntreEd. It is my great honor to uplift this excellent podcast, What School Could Be. As always, we are super excited to support innovation in education. We've been lucky enough to feature some of the incredible What School Could Be educators on our podcast. If you are looking to be inspired by entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial educators and other great minds from across the world, check out the EntreEd Talk podcast and please like and subscribe and leave a review. Thanks for tuning in. Hey everyone, we are back with Paul Balaz, the Student Activities Coordinator, Wipeout Crew Advisor, and IBDP Theory of Knowledge Teacher at Henry J. Kaiser High School in East Honolulu. So in this section, Paul, I want to get three stories out on the table for our listeners. And these stories, as I learned about them, spoke volumes to me about you, your life as a guide and mentor and coach, and about the lives of your students. So these questions will also give you space to talk about your school's garden project, the Wipeout Crew, and your philosophy of education. So here's the first one. I'm going to quote from a paragraph in something you wrote back in 2019, pre-pandemic, which was posted as a news article at your Kaiser High School website. And I quote, When we were asked to represent Hawaii and the United States of America six months ago at the fourth annual United Nations Tsunami Awareness Summit, we had no idea what we were taking on. After a bit of research, we learned that we'd be joining over 500 student representatives from 44 different countries around the world, and that was going to be in Japan. So Paul, flat out, hands down, no question, what you described in this article might be one of the greatest examples of what we at What School Could Be call real-world challenges. So the two parts to my question are, and we'll have to keep this kind of semi-brief because this was a huge story, really. What happened in Hokkaido? And to borrow from the title of my colleague Steve Shapiro's podcast, Experience Matters, why did this experience matter? And I mean really matter. Yeah, that was a quite exceptional experience. To be called upon by our school and by our state and really by the country to lead that, that was a great honor you know, for myself and my students. And it, I think it reflected kind of our mission and vision here at Kaiser which is to really expand on, on what we know and, and what we're trying to be a part of, you know. I think that students, you know, need to be given opportunities to see that they're a part of a global society, that are a part of a global community. And that trip to Okoshiri, to Hokkaido, Japan, to meet those people and to live in those villages just for a short time, it provided, I think, the kind of experience that all students need, which is, you know, to be a, a real, authentic experience with people who care about issues that are affecting them deeply. And, you know, prior to to us leaving, you know, the students had done a survey and and found that most people don't really have a tsunami preparedness plan. Mm. You know, most people aren't moved to create a plan with themselves, with their neighbors, you know, within their families, with their communities. But in Hokkaido, it's a day-to-day, you know, it's, it's a real fear. And it's a fear because, you know, they have experiences, they have memories, you know? So I think, I think being there with the students, it just provided them insight into thinking about how other people prepare, other people live their lives, how communities can work together to solve problems or, or to strategize to overcome. You know, and if you if you look at the definition of resilience and sustainability, I think you would find that mm. you'd find you know not just words on a paper, but experiences that over time are grafted to become something that's much larger than I think most people you know make it out to be. That trip was yeah, it was quite the experience. And what was it like? I wonder. You know, I wish I was a fly on the wall as you all came home back to Honolulu again after the experience was over. And in the article, you had written about how almost almost like a flower blossoms and opens up, that this was a slow opening up of experiences for these students as they kind of figured out what was going on and what they were going to be doing and who they're going to be connected with. And then the experience happens and then you're you're on your way home and and if we were 
you know, flies on the wall on the trip back home. Like, what was that like? What were they talking about? How did, how did their lives change as a result of this trip? Well, first of all, you know, when you're at a tsunami summit and you're talking with families, community members, community leaders, you know, who had the unfortunate situation of having a tsunami affect their entire lives, their, their villages, their, their mm-hmm. homes. There wasn't a day that went by that, you know, while we we're on that trip that, you know, we weren't all led, brought to tears. You know, so, you know, coming home on a plane back to, you know, your reality, back to your day to day, you know, I think the students carry with them, you know, a piece of those experiences, a piece of a piece of those stories and a piece of those people, mm. you know, and now when you have, you're given such, such incredible human insight into how people are so resilient and how people can, can lead with love despite chaos, despite whatever crisis they're facing you know, it becomes a part of you. It becomes, it becomes a part of your story and you carry that resilience with you. And all it does is teach you how to be better, mm. how to think deeper, how to dig deeper, you know, how to, and how to live your life with love. You mm. know, when, when, it, when we all got off that plane, every single one of those members of that team, all of those, you know, 17 year olds were such better people just for having those experiences. Mm. I think a lot of people have a strong sense, Paul, of their own individual resilience. But then when you contemplate community or collective resilience, the definition of that term changes because you feel a sort of interconnectedness as part of being resilient. I think that must have happened, right? Yeah. I mean, you can be strong on your own, but it's not until you're able to truly understand what strength means to somebody else that you can begin to adapt and you begin to understand that resilience is being consistently strong. It's being able to see that there are challenges and changes that you can't account for, you know? And so you have to prepare yourself with this foundation, you know, with the, with the roots needed and I think it really is through looking at other people and how they're strong in their situation. That gives you definition. Not just seeing what you are and what you believe, but what you're not and what's outside of your norm. Yeah, love that. Okay, so on to the second story. So I, I love, love stories about real students doing real things that are really meaningful. So the story I want you to tell us about a Kaiser High School student, Yongjin Lee. But the question comes from the last paragraph of an article posted last year to the Honolulu Star Advertiser's website by journalist Mindy Pennybacker, and I quote, I think moving here played a big role in making me be able to pursue my passion in environmental science, Jin Lee said, adding the deep meaning I found through the plants also deepened my Hawaii roots. Okay, so walk us through what happened with this kid born in Korea to a South Korean diplomat and his wife, and in what ways... Is this a great object lesson, Paul, in opening up kids to relevant experiences like your garden project? Oh, man. Yeah, Youngjin Lee is a hero in my eyes. Mm. That young man grew up in a city with no yard, no plants, very few trees for as far as the eye could see. He did not have anything green surrounding him, had nothing in his house, nothing on his property. He lived in an apartment complex. So this is how he described his home to me. Mm. Coming to Hawaii was a dream come true. He wanted to be an environmental scientist. He wanted to be in conservation. He wanted to, to focus on plants, on nature, but grew up in an environment where there was none. Mm. You know, it's, it's a really fascinating story. So he comes to me, you know, one day, he, knew, he knows that I'm the, the gardening caretaker. And he explained to me what his pathway was, what he wanted for himself. And I said, hey, well, you know, you can come out to the garden, spend some time in the garden, and we'll see what you know, see what you can do, see what, you know, you like to do for the garden or, you know, for yourself. Mm. And so he comes out and he has the most amazing time. He, and this is like, actually, I think it's during COVID too. So he's mm. not, everyone is allowed on campus, but you know, he came every day anyway. He made it a point to come on a campus and do his work within his garden. He found online by himself an opportunity to work with Kupu and yes. other community leaders, I think Kokua Hawaii Foundation. Mm-hmm. And so he actually got to work with mentors a whole team of people that supported him on a project that he created, which was to see if you could plant and maintain or grow native Hawaiian plants in your own backyard. Mm. And if you could do it, would they be viable for planting in a larger garden in the environment? So mm. this young man was able to get, I think it was 50 or 60 available seeds, plant them in his own home. He planted mm. them actually in the same room that he keeps his washer and his dryer. <laughs> the majority of them sprout and did, did quite well. He brought them to campus and he planted them. Now we currently, as of today, February 2023, we have a very large available garden, mm. all because of young man's determination, young man's will, you know, and his eagerness to be a part of a future and a dream that he, he really had no roots in, just had a single idea and had the ambition to seek it out. Mm. Has Youngjin graduated already? It sounds like he has. Yeah, he graduated last year. 
And, you know, how is his journey continuing now? Well, now he's studying environmental science. He went on to college. And I actually, you know, I really can't say where he's at right now. Mm. But he did reach out to mm. me a few months ago and we plan to touch base when he comes home. Wow, that's just such a great story. You know, especially coming out of the environment that you described where there was nothing green, you know, yeah. and here he comes into this. So I guess that begs the question, I wonder if you can just share with our listeners a little bit of the backstory of the garden itself. What's the context of this school garden that you oversee and that the kids engage with? In 2016, the club that I'm the advisor of, the Wipeout Crew, which was formed in 2014. In 2016, the students really wanted to kind of get their hands dirty, literally, in kind of understanding the concept of sustainability, conservation. They want to see if they, if they could grow their own garden. And so we sought out advice from our administration on where that might be, you know, be able to take place. Mm. And they gave us a very far corner of the school campus, which actually just so happens to be near, near to my room. Mm. It took us about six months to clear the land. The land was, you know, seven, eight foot high California grass, completely overgrown. You couldn't see, you know, you couldn't see past it. So it took us many months to cut it all down, to cut it all back. Machetes, chainsaws, wee whackers, pretty much every day for, for six months. Mm. When we did, we discovered a few things. First, we could see the property next to us, which happened to be a farm. Oh, Again, okay. we could see the land under the California grass, which we had just cleared, had a loey, actually had two large rock formations or plots, which clearly in my eyes and my experiences housed the loey in the past. So we reached out to some of our vets who have you know, been at Kaiser for a lot of years, and they told me that it had once been belonged to Michelle Capana Baird, which is one of our great navigation and health teachers here at Kaiser High School. Mm. We reached out to her for the story, and she told us that in 2001, when the World Trade Center was attacked, or America was attacked, her and her husband came to school and they brought a single plant called a co-plant, mm. a co-tree. And it's funny because I, you know, I was a sophomore at high school at that point. And I, re I recall my parents you know, asking me if I wanted to go to school that day. I stayed home. But she tells a story that she and her husband came to school because she knew that some students wouldn't have maybe an environment to stay home in. We all know that, especially during the pandemic, it you know brought it to light. You know, every home is different, every situation is different, and some students just really need a place to go during the day. And so, her and her husband said, "You know what? Let's come to school. And whoever shows up, we'll be there for them." You know, as they kind of deal with this situation. And so, they came to school. They brought a co tree, and over the course of the day, they talked to the students, they cared for them, they counseled them, and at the end of the day. They all went around and said how they're, they're going to dedicate themselves to a life of peace. And they planted this tree, this co-tree. It was just a few feet tall at the time. Now it stands over 35 feet tall, 22 years later. So the sustainability garden, which was called when you had first begun it, became then the peace and sustainability garden. It's mm -hmm. a place for all people to come and celebrate each other, to learn about sustainability, to learn about the relationship with nature. The garden began as just a fruit and vegetable garden. And now it's a place where 78 Native Hawaiian plants grow and thrive, and also where a compost project is, is being done, also where two botany classes now actually get to work with the soil, soil science, propagation, and expand their learning out, outside of the classroom. So it's, you know, it was a very small project at first, but today it's a thriving place where students can take their learning outside into the world and teach themselves a little bit more about nature. And it's a part of the culture of the campus, it sounds like, for sure. Yeah. So... In fact, Paul, and this is the third of these questions in this section, one of the most important things I wanted to have my listeners learn about is the story of the Wipeout Crew, which I was stunned to learn 135 students signed up for this year, even though they don't get any academic credit for it. That's pretty amazing. So specifically, I want to point out an awesome blog post by a student who, because of the Wipeout Crew, started an ethical clothing brand called C7. So I wonder if you can share a little bit more about the Wipeout Crew and what its mission and vision is and why this student, why it's probably not surprising that this student actually did what she did, which is to start this ethical clothing brand, given that she cited in that blog post how much the Wipeout Crew meant to her. Yeah, that student, Lei, you know, she's remarkable. And she's really one of many who have taken the Wipeout Crew as a, 
kind of like a framework for how she sees her life. And, you know, a lot of our students that have come to the club and yeah, there's 135 this year. Not all of them show up every meeting, you know, yeah. but, you know, they all take the club, you know, in a way that, or I guess it allows them to see, you know, their lives and how they can create change for themselves. So we have a super diversified approach. You know, we do stewardship, activism, outreach, and service. You know, everyone is asked to be a part of this, whatever they feel comfortable, whatever area of their life that they feel they need to think a little bit more about how they can create positive change in the environment. And Lay just did that. She wants to run her own clothing brand, but she wants to run it in a way that's ethical, a way mm-hmm. that reflects her values. And I think it's a really powerful thing for our students to see is that, you know, you don't have to, you know, give up your values and give up what you care about and the things you deeply value. You know, you have to give those things up if you want to follow your dream. You can do both. You know, you can you can have what you want, you know, and still make a difference in the world. You just have to just have to be intentional about it. And Lay is a great success story in my eyes for how that can be done. You know, how you can make a living but without sacrificing who you are. Mm. You know, Paul, one of the most important books that I read in 2022 is called The World Becomes What We Teach by Zoe Weil, who's the founder of the Institute for Humane Education, which is based in Maine. And I just, I love that story about Lei because in effect, she is what Zoe Weil calls a solutionary, meaning someone who seeks to do something to create a solution to a problem but sees it almost from a 360 perspective. In other words, they're trying to be ethical and moral and principled about how they're doing the process and how they're rolling out the solution to whatever it is. And it sounds like that's really who Lei became through that process, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the way she, you know, and first of all, you know, Lei was the president of the club. And so mm. she had a responsibility, not just to herself, but to everybody else. So you know, the way she handled the meetings, the way that she led our outreach and our stewardship projects, the way that she helped to teach other people how to testify on things they believed and how to be a part of, mm. you know, politics, to get involved with actually what takes place in the community. She did really see it in that way that you're describing as a 360 thing. She, you know, she saw every component, but she also knew that, you know, it was within her ability, but also her responsibility to help others, you know, also find that awareness, also find within themselves another way to go, another possibility for that. Mm. Just gives me goosebumps thinking about that, Paul. It really does. You know, you just realize that, you know, this is a young person who's becoming actualized in so many different ways. And that's just, that's a great, great story. So, hey, everyone, we'll be right back with more questions for Paul Belos. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Aloha, my name is Aaron Shorn, a previous guest on this very podcast. I am also now head of growth and community at Hawaii's own Unruler. Unruler is a collaborative mobile and web platform that accelerates innovation, grows culture and community, and celebrates learning. Learners post multimedia, tag their learning, and through comments are able to work together asynchronously. Each post is a moment of learning that forms the foundation of a joyous learning journey. We can be found at UNR. ULR.com. Mahalo. Hey everyone, we are back with Paul Balaz, the IBDP Theory of Knowledge teacher, student activities coordinator, and wipeout crew advisor at Henry J. Kaiser High School in East Honolulu. So Paul, on your resume, you note International Baccalaureate Diploma Program theory of knowledge instructor, which you have been teaching since 2015. And in this course, you support young people as they seek to understand the origins of knowledge and help them become more compassionate, knowledgeable, and active global citizens. So I wonder if you could share with our listeners that exact moment when you were asked to teach theory of knowledge, what you were thinking in that moment, why folks thought you were a no-brainer to teach the course, and how at that time back in 2015, you plan to engage your students 
in such a brain-heavy, focused course? You know, theory of knowledge came to me at a time in which I think it was difficult to find teachers who wanted to teach it. It's a course that doesn't really have a department. And it's not really English. It's not really science. It's sociology or history. It's kind of all those things put together. The course itself, you know, lends itself to discussion about society, about what changes us, what affects us, you know, where we gravitate towards, you know, because of either our bias or our background or, or the ways we are we raised, the things we're taught to see, the ways we're taught to, you know, to apply ourselves. All of those things have merit, but they're not all there is. And so theory of knowledge is the way for us to see how different people see the world, develop different perspectives and points of view, and allow those things to color, you know, our lives, to define our lives. And, and it, it can be an incredibly enriching experience. And the students, you know, really look forward to and, and love the class itself because of how liberating it does feel to say, you know what, I don't really need just my own. I, I have others as well that I can, I can look to others for guidance, others for support. The class um, has allowed me to really be myself in a lot of ways. You know, I'm an English teacher. You know, my, my degree was in secondary education, focus of English at the University of Hawaii. Mm. And so my background in English is actually kind of philosophical. You know, I teach a lot of the, the philosophers, a lot of the early writings, you know, and I always incorporate, you know, culturally relevant, you know, material as well. So theory of knowledge, it allows me to pick up some of those philosophies and some of the philosophers that I study, that I, that I love, the great writers, but also play into the hand of you know, what our community needs and, and who are the people of Hawaii are. So yeah, so as an, as an English teacher, as a theory of knowledge teacher, I'm able to find an intersection between you know, philosophy and some of the great writing, but also indigenous knowledge, cultural values, you know? you know, looking at perspective and how important it is to understand how the world is so diverse and so unique. In, in every way. Mm. You know, it's, it's funny, I'll tell you a quick story. In early 2017, there was an incident in which one of our playgrounds in the community was burned down. Mm. And the community was called upon to ask its teachers and PTSA and parents and families to come and support and help to rebuild the playground. At the time, one of the families, one of the fathers who was a contractor, he decided to support the initiative by providing all the materials to rebuild this playground. But he needed support. So it was a great time for everyone to come together and a great opportunity because we had the, you know, all the building materials paid for and taken care of. So we're there, you know, we're building all day, all morning, and we sit down for lunch. And one of the people on the contracting team, he sat down next to me and, he's, and he said, hey, I hear you're a teacher. You know, can I ask, what, what did you teach? I said, well, I teach theory of knowledge and English. And he said, well, my son's in elementary school and might one day go to Kaiser. Can I ask you if there's one thing that you want all of your students to, to take away from from school once, you know, once they graduate high school, you know, what would it be? And I said, well, you know, I think that it's really important for students to travel, to see the world and think about the ways that different people live in this world. And then once they have enough experiences and they feel like they have enough knowledge, kind of figure it out, come home and see how you can, you know, be of service. And he said, you teach our kids to leave America? And I said, yeah, I think it's important to get perspective. And they said, wow, it's incredibly anti-American of you. I hope I never, my son never has you. And he got up and he walked away. And the other teachers at our table were sat there stunned. The family members, like the other parents sat there looking at me like we couldn't believe this perspective that someone, at, at, you know, could think that so highly of their own, own nation, own country, or their own way of, of being and felt that that was better than everybody else's, that there was no other perspective to be gained because once whoever you are, that's all you need. You know, my class, it really weighs heavily into like trying to be appreciative you can celebrate the diversity that we have and use that as a strength. You know, not something that's going to break us down or diminish us, but make us stronger as a global community. It's really the vision and mission of the IB program. Mm. And really, it's my mission as a teacher as well. Mm. So connected question then, and that's a great story. In 2017, out of this theory of knowledge course, you birthed what you called a life travelers program, which takes kids to different countries. So you've taken teams of young public school learners to Fiji, Thailand, and Laos, and you are returning to Fiji again this summer, 2023. So why? What happens to these young folks under your guidance and mentoring and coaching on these trips to faraway places? Like, how does the arc of their lives change as a result of that? It's in these villages that, you know, the students are asked to work and to live and to share, you know, the lives of people that have entirely different lives than their own that still live by traditional customs and norms and beliefs and values that operate you know, under this idea that everything that we have is because everyone's working together, that, that we all are each other. You know, mm-hmm. When the elders get up in the morning, they go and work the farms. When the kids wake up in the morning, they, they also go and work the farms. Everyone works together, whether you're eight or you're 80, your responsibility. 
And for a lot of our students, that's a very different approach to life. Mm. You know, a lot of what we expect our kids to do is follow this framework, follow this formula we provided them, which is to take college, you know, preparatory classes, graduate from high school, and then be out of the house. You know, that's kind of the norm. And when people decide to stay, it's kind of a breaking of the norm. And those people have to deal with, you know, the maybe the stereotypes or stigmas others give them. But regardless, we very rarely ask families or community, what is it that you want us to teach our children? You know, what is it that we all need that we can be providing the education for that our students can then become stewards of their own homes? Mm. It's a very rare question, but in these other <laughs> countries, these villages, it has to be asked. You know, you have to provide an education that can give back to the community. Mm. That is sustainability. <laughs> That's resilience. That's how you create it. You know, not teaching everyone to do their own thing and be individualized to the point where the community itself suffers. Mm. You know, I know, I know we have our own values and it's much different here, but you know, there's something in that that students learn. And now this doesn't mean that you know the students come home from those trips and then just stay home. Most all of them, I say probably all of them actually have gone on to other schools, have gone to Cornell and Puget and Seattle and Stanford, and you mm-hmm. know, they've done great things. Or they stay here in Hawaii. But regardless, they took a part of that trip a part of that story and they carry it with them. That's how they see the world too. It's not just what they want, but they also have to factor in the lives and the needs of other people in this world. Mm. I had one student who was going to go to Seattle University and study business. And she changed her major from business to business ethics. Mm. You know, she wanted to look into how to create an ethical business, you know, how to help others create more ethical frameworks for business. You know, it's always an entirely new approach that she hadn't thought about until she had, you know, worked with, or seeing some uh, families working in Fiji to serve, you know, not just to serve themselves, but also always to serve the community as well. Mm. So I want to come at this from a slightly different direction, Paul. You feel, or you've, you've shared with me that treating young people as vessels to be filled up with a canon of knowledge is, you know, maybe disrespectful, maybe even destructive even. So how does the whole teacher-student experience change when teachers treat learners as sources of knowledge? I think that the respect, you know, that a classroom suddenly has, I think that the learning environment itself is so much more conducive to life. It's more life-giving. Students then feel like they have a place, that they feel respected, and they feel that their time and their energy and their work is sacred, which I really do think it is. Mm -hmm. You know, I really think that every student, every child that comes to my classroom is someone that has so much to offer so much that they've not just maybe seen themselves, you know, or they've not been given the, the right opportunity to bring it out. I've seen so many situations where, and I think most educators know this, but where, you know, a student just hasn't been asked yet to deliver a kind of project through the medium that they're most comfortable. And you finally give them that medium. You say, okay, instead of writing a paper, I want you to draw me a paper. Mm. I want you to draw me what you learned. Everyone knows that you ask the right student that question, they're going to do a much better job with the art than with the paper. The paper might not be able to reflect their learning, reflect what they you know, took away from the story or, or how they've used those skills you know, in a new and, and innovative way. But if you ask them the right question in the right environment under the right pretense, I think a student could really show their true colors. And you provide a, an, an environment of respect you know, where they know that they are respected for who they are and as people, that all of their flaws and their faults, their, everything they bring to the table, they're going to do a much better job in the classroom and in life if you provide that environment. Mm, I love that. And it really speaks to something that we at Wet School could be care a lot about, which is assessments for deeper learning and giving students an opportunity, as you said, to do something that's more visual or to do, you know, a film that helps explain your learning or a podcast or some other kind of project or building something that's tangible, right? It's a gesture of respect towards the student when you do that because they understand that you're honoring that they're all coming from different places, right? They're all coming from different experiences with different kinds of learner styles and different ways of expressing what they know. And that's just so respectful to do that. Oh, absolutely. Students, when they know that you're providing that environment and you're respecting them and coming at them with nothing but love and nothing but an open hand saying, hey, what can you say You know, in your own way that can let us see where you're coming from? That's what we need. More mm. of those rooms and those spaces to celebrate diversity, celebrate equality, celebrate student voice in the most authentic way, not the way that we draw it up, but the way that they want to draw it up. Right. Totally agree.
So Paul, prior to today's conversation, I wondered if you could share one of those hugely impactful moments all of us teachers have at some point in our careers. We all have them. A moment that sort of defines who we are and why we do what we do. And you shared a story about a young woman who, because of some mental health issues, slowly stopped coming to school and you did not let it go. You kept communicating with her. And well, I'll let you tell the story, which I think speaks to the idea of building what we at What School Could Be call a caring and connected community. So what is that story? What can you tell us about that? It was early 2013. I was a pretty new teacher. Mm. And the way that I teach English class, just so everyone has some background, is every day we open with a different quote, a different question, a different prompt where students will be given, you know, seven to 10 minutes or so to write their own thoughts, their feelings on it. They can draw, they can sketch, they can tell a story. I always give a few questions for them to reflect upon. If they're having a little hard time free writing, they can go to the questions and answer those instead. Anyway, I I always choose, you know, things that tug at the moral side of life, you Mm -hmm. know, some of the, the deeper questions and deeper wonderings. And it does usually tie into what we're reading. So in my classroom back in the day, we'd be reading either Brave New World or 1984. I know the cage bird sings mm. into the wild, you know, whatever it might be. But it's always asking students to share a part of their heart, part of their soul, and mm. to really dig into that. And this student happened to love it. She was an artist. She was a, a visual artist, but she also was a graphic designer. She had a lot of, a lot of talent, a lot of skill, but she also had a lot of problems in her life. And she had things that she was going through at the time that affected her very deeply, that affected her ability to learn in the classroom like everybody else. She couldn't really be there 100%. When I always tell my students, you know, we have, you know, we have no idea what goes on in a person's life before they get to this room. You know, we have no idea what their weekend was like, what their night was like, what their morning was like. We have no idea what they're facing outside of these walls. And so when students come to the classroom, we should be giving them all the respect that they deserve. They could actually be going through the fight of their life. And this student was. There was a, a point when I received a communication from our counselors, you know, our administration, that student would be, you know, going home and will be taking classes from home. And so, you know, like they do, they ask all the educators, all the teachers to send home work, make sure that, you know, that this person had everything they needed to be working from home to still be learning along with the class. So I kept sending things home. I kept sending journal prompts home. I didn't send any projects, but she did have the books we were reading. But all I really wanted her to do was to take those prompts and reflect upon them every day because I really felt those prompts were affecting her, that she really enjoyed them. Mm. And they got her to think about why it was all worth it, why life was worth it, why she was worth it. And I didn't see her many times after that. And at the start of the next year, right before classes began, you know, she came to my door and I was kind of setting up the room for the new year. She knocked on my door and she came in and she shared with me how important those prompts were and how important it was that I stayed in communication with her, how much she respected and appreciated that I never forgot. Even though she wasn't in the classroom every day, she was very rarely there. She was, like I said, most of the time, almost 100% of the time she was at, at home. I never forgot to send an email or mm-hmm. to forget those prompts. And she gave me a book and the book was one of those writing journal prompt books, you know, where every page is a different prompt kind of gets you to mm-hmm. practice your writing skills or writing Anyway, it was called 100 Prompts for Daily Writing or something. Mm. And on the last page, she wrote in where, you know, the last page of the book, it was blank, a blank white page. And she wrote in 101. And the prompt was, what would you say if you were told that you saved a girl's life? And the page was blank. Wow. And she gave me this book as a a gift. And it, you know, brought me the most... (laughs) I mean, it's one of those moments where you you just realize that there's many things in this world that are bigger than a classroom environment. It's many things in this world that are bigger than education, than content. It's people. Everything we do is about, about people. Everything everything we are is about people. It's relationships. And in that moment, I, I just it was one of those like clarifying moments for me that the path I was on as a teacher, as a person, as a young man, was the right path. That I was I was where I needed to be. I was trying my best, you know. Wow. That's a great story, Paul. Wow. Relationships and love and respect, right? That's what it's all about with students. So, Paul, we've come down to the end of our time together, and I love to end episodes by having guests do a shout-out to a giant upon whose shoulders they stand, a mentor, a guide, coach, advisor, friend, inspiration, and fellow sojourner, possibly, You shared with me the stories of two of these giants, two remarkable people who had an outsized impact on your life. 
So who are Rinda Fernandez and Robin Mann, and what do you want to share about them? Wow. Well, Robin Mann, she was an educator at Kapilani Community College, sociology. I took, I think, three or four of her classes. She was an educator that just believed in you. And because she believed in you, you believed in yourself. I took every class she offered at that school, not because I was studying sociology, but because I loved the way that her classes made me feel. I love the way that she got us to think about the world and our place in it. And I love that she was able to take risks. And one of those risks was taking 30 students that she didn't know outside of just the three or four weeks that we were with her, taking us to a different island. She took us to Kauai in my year. And we were asked to create projects that dug deeper into what we cared about and what we wanted to see changed in our society. And Everyone in the classroom chose a similar topic and had to come at it from different ways. And our topic was homelessness and drug use. Mm. And so we were set up with meetings with all of the big hitters, with, the, I believe, the governor was there, community leaders, nonprofits, school teachers, business owners, just to get perspective on how the community felt about it, what they were seeing, what was being done, the different layers of it. You know, it wasn't just the stigmas and stereotypes that are built up like we might have here in downtown Waikiki or something. But there are layers of it. There are cultural things to take into account. There are Native Hawaiian issues to take into account. You know, there are values, there's identities that are at stake here. It's not a solution like solving homelessness by throwing money at it, you know, taking people out of the street. There are mental health issues, you know. And so when I was a 20-year-old, you know, at KCC, this was a new concept for me to come at things that might make sense to solve with your brain, but might need to be solved with your heart. What Robin Mann taught me was that everything needs to be come at through love of it. And not just through the need to solve it, you know, some mm-hmm. things just can't be solved. And that was really important for me as a young man and growing into a, I didn't even sign up as to be an educator just yet. So I really didn't even know I wanted to be a teacher, but yet the way she worked with us was very foundational for me. Mm-hmm. The second person was Renda Fernandez. You know, she was the student activities coordinator at this school that I'm at now, Kaiser, before I became it. I named her as that person just because of how influential she was for me. As a person who cared so deeply about students that she would take risks with her colleagues, with her position, because she felt that it was the right thing to do on the bigger picture of things. She knew that it was more important to support young people who needed someone to see them and to offer them a seat to the table. I recall right before she retired, I think it was maybe two years ago, you know, our, our school was asked to come up with a new civil rights policy or a new way of handling more gender-based things like homecoming court and prom court and all that. And mm-hmm. so she was able to actually spearhead, you know, a conference for all of the students to come and share their perspectives and to learn about the issue and learn about what other schools are doing and actually come up with a strategy to help support and be inclusive of all of our students at the school, not just those who are male or female. And this is the very end of her career. And she's still always pushed for diversity, always pushed for justice and equality for all of her students. And that has always been a really big part of my life and my teaching. So I, you know, person I look to always for guidance and support. Even now I, I'll text her, you know, or, or, <laughs> or give her a call and ask her for her perspective just because I care that much about what she feels or what she, mm-hmm. she thinks about these issues, you know? Wow. That's awesome, Paul. I love that. And I think what we'll do in this moment is we'll dedicate this episode to Rinda and Robin and thank them for all they have done and will continue to do. And I just love those kinds of stories. And I think it really connects with what you've been talking about for the last hour, which is really about relationships and love and how our resilience is really a collective resilience. If we work together, we can accomplish all sorts of things. And I think that that's just great. So Paul Balaz, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I hope you and your extended family have a great 2023 And we wish you the best of luck as you move forward with teaching theory of knowledge and advising the Wipeout crew and developing your school garden and engaging the community the way that you do. Thank you for all that you do, Paul. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Josh. Appreciate you. My editor, creative consultant, and sound engineer is the talented Evan Kurohara. Our theme music comes from the vast catalog of music created by my friend of 40 years, the remarkable pianist, Michael Sloan. Producer of 12 albums with over 100 songs, Michael Sloan is featured in Apple Music, Spotify, and all major music platforms. You can also find his work at his YouTube channel, 
Michael has listeners in over 100 countries and over 2,000 cities to date. Support these episodes with remarkable, innovative, and imaginative educators and education leaders by giving us your own rating and writing us a review at your favorite podcast store. The series is underwritten by education change agent Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed documentary film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book, What School Could Be. Please join the What School Could Be global online community by going to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or by downloading the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. The What School Could Be podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Send your feedback to josh at whatschoolcouldbe.org. Also, follow the show on Twitter at WSCB Podcast. Listeners, the most important thing you can do in these uncertain times is to bring kindness and compassion into the world. We need a surplus of both right now. Until the next episode, ahui ho and take care.